Hello and welcome to Access Chat. I'm really glad that we're able to welcome back Ian Hamilton. We were thinking that Ian's a regular here on Access Chat and then we realised it's been six years. Um, so we're all a little bit more uh, portly, uh, our hair is greyer, our beards are stubblier. Um, Ian, it's great to have you back. I think that when we talked first time around, you know, there were good things happening in the gaming industry, but uh, gaming industry really has gone from, you know, the birth of accessibility as a topic to it being something that companies compete on now um, within the space of uh, a few short years. And um, as a catalyst in that industry, we're, we're delighted to have you back. So tell us, please, you know, a little bit for those that haven't been with us in the last six years, about your background and the work that you're doing with GA Conf, etc. Um, yeah, so I am an accessibility specialist um, in games specifically. I've got a background in web um, design and UX before that. Um, before that, and um, I started kind of getting my indoctrination in accessibility whilst working at the BBC on their um, kids' games and websites um, across both. So I was seeing um, how in the web industry there's um, very well established standards and practices and disciplines and there really wasn't that on the game side. Um, so that's where I kind of started getting interested in, in accessibility um, was then at the BBC. And um, over my time there, it kind of evolved to the point where I was um, had part of my working week set aside and actually part of my responsibilities was accessibility. And then, um, Along came a time when um, BBC moved across the other side of the country. I couldn't move with them, um, so I had to look around for a new job. And by that point, accessibility was the aspect of my role that I enjoyed the most and wanted to go and find somewhere else where I could continue doing the same thing. And um, the number of roles out there um, was zero, literally zero. Um, so that was like a lightning bolt for me. I'd assume sitting in this like little bubble of one company that of course everyone else has all got their their stuff sorted out, but no, they hadn't. So that's a big wake up call for me, and that's what pushed me into um, advocacy and awareness raising and like writing and speaking and working on um, guidelines and all that kind of stuff. And um, that situation has now changed quite fundamentally. This this, this is a long time ago. This was back in like about ten years ago. Um, even the last time I was on, on the show, um, six years ago, in uh, 2016, um, there were still no accessibility roles at all in game studios. There was two, two game accessibility roles in existence. That was um, Evelyn Thomas and Bryce Johnson at Xbox, um, but that's working on accessibility of the Xbox platform rather than games themselves. And fast forward from six years ago to now, um, there's now 70 people in full-time dedicated accessibility roles in game studios and publishers. It's been quite a phenomenal pace of change. Ian, welcome back to the program. We, we always enjoy your work. And um, so I have a really hard question for you, Ian. So, um, there's this thing that we're talking about that's brand new and we're very excited about it because it's just going to change everything. And it's called the metaverse. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. So 
I'm fascinated with what the gamers have done to our world technology-wise, because I hear people talking about this metaverse, and it's like, okay, I hear you, but this is not a brand new thing. This is something that's already been done. It's just the gamers now are insisting that this be accessible for everybody. Not all gamers, but certainly leaders like you, Ian. So I was just curious how your work as it's evolved, how does it tie into now what we're doing with the metaverse, which isn't that all about gaming? Or do I misunderstand what the Internet 3 is all about? Yeah, well, it's it's not about gaming per se. It's about um, existing in and navigating in a virtual 3D environment, which of course has lots in common with games. Um, so there's a lot of good lessons that can be learned um, from the games industry, especially when you've got um, companies that have um, you know 500 or so um, really passionate, um, skilled creative problem solvers um, throwing themselves at these kind of problems in um, games that have budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars. That's a really valuable asset that not a lot of kind of tech startup startups kind of have access to. So it's nice that um, people are able to kind of move sideways and theoretically you can just look sideways to another similar industry and start learning some of those lessons and get some cross-pollination going on. And it's been exactly the same um, with the games industry and other industries as well, like um, game developers, if they just kind of shift their heads slightly to the side and they get some other screen-based industries, there's all kinds of wonderful lessons to be learned and things from things like um, captioning and audio description, all that kind of stuff that's applicable to games as well. I agree. And, and I think the opportunity, I keep saying when I'm talking about the metaverse, that they need to turn and look to the gamers because I think, you know, if the whole world's, I'm going to be a digital twin and all that and, it's just very interesting to me, but I think that the work that you and leaders like you have done to make sure games are accessible for everyone, I think it lends itself to what we're trying to do with the metaverse. And I'm I'm concerned that we're going to continue to make the same mistakes we've been making all along when we're dealing with technology and communications. And, and I was talking to somebody about that not long ago and um, had said, well, you know, you yourself are going to fall off those bell-shaped that bell-shaped curve that we're designing for. So with the efforts that you've made and others have made in gaming to make gaming accessible to anyone that wants to game, seems like we need to take those design, you know, ideas, processes and pick them up and put them into these metaverse conversations. But do you see in that the two paths are crossing in a way because it seems like the people that are working on the metaverse, um, they, they seem to be, a lot of it is still happening in a vacuum. So I was just wondering, have you seen the industry move to getting the gamers more involved? Because I think that there's a lot of value in that. Um, honestly, no, I don't pay much attention to what happens with the metaverse. Um, okay. Not much interest to me. Which but, is uh, interesting because I would think that it would, y'all would add a lot of value. And so I'm um, fascinated that you're saying, yeah, we're going to just stick, uh, you know, I'm putting words in your mouth, but is there an opportunity for us to bring those two conversations together more? And is that it will, is there, um, will there be benefit for our community? by doing that. And I, I'm, maybe I'm asking that to everybody, you know, um, but I, that's what I've been thinking, but I also, honestly, I'm not a gamer. 
I my my kids yeah, but, were, but but, but Deborah, not... you, you you can even ask: Do we really need the metaverse? You know, uh, will it be as preeminent as people want it to be, <laughs> or it will just have its own space and corner, like many other technologies have on the web? Well, I, I think that will be more the case. I don't think it's going to be as predominant. So probably that's why some people might not have that uh, interest okay. as the as the VC is trying to push money and bringing investment to those organizations. Yeah, that's, so that's I didn't exactly change the name of my company to Meta. No, okay, cool. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ian. I think I, I accidentally stepped on you. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's fine. I'm just saying that's exactly exactly the perspective that I come from. That I don't think it's this great new paradigm that's going to completely transform how we live and work. I think there's uh, lots of um, people with a lot of money invested in it who want you to think that so they get return their investment. And you mentioned Facebook changing its name to Meta. Facebook have hemorrhaged so much money um, from that. Um, but yeah, and I, I think it will be exactly as Antonia is describing it. It'll be some some interesting sideshow that some people use from time to time. I mean, remember when 3D TV was going to transform how we consume media? You know, right. Oh, well, yeah, so that's just where I'm coming from. That, that I don't that I don't think it's this huge new paradigm that's going to change how we live our lives. But it's always the same. Going back to what you said earlier, when some new technological innovation comes around, um, people are so excited by the imagined potential of this new paradigm um, that they completely forget everything that they already knew, thinking this new thing is completely different and nothing like Aiden's been before. Actually, they usually are just a slight tweak of what has gone on before, so a lot of what you already knew is still applicable, but people seem to forget that in the race to, to, to the new shiny, you know? I, I still have my 3D glasses that I bought with my 3D TV. Um, that I've used precisely twice. I, I watched the opening ceremony of the uh, London 2012 Olympics and I watched Avatar and I had a headache after both experiences and they've been in gathering dust in the cupboard ever since. I think that there are specific use cases where the, you know, virtual reality rather than the metaverse because it's constrained, it's like a mini-verse, um, will have utility. But I think the last thing I want to do is spend eight hours a day with a, a headset on. I, I, no joy in that. I think that, you know, just to go to work and then the, the idea of um, being having to walk in a virtual world between meetings and the holes that I've watched a number of times now where we've, We've done things in the metaverse, and there's loads of people around, and they're all sort of sort of bumping against walls and trying to navigate because actually they're sort of late in their late middle age and they've forgotten how to use their WASD keys, and you know it's a long time since they uh, actually did anything immersive. Um, when you could just click on a link and turn into a Zoom call or a, a Teams meeting, which are perfectly serviceable. So I, I think that Antonio, you are right. The, the case for it is really you know, not necessarily there for, for the kind of investment that's going on and people are hyping it up because they, they really want to get their money back. Yeah. And we've seen in the last week that Meta have made something like 13,000 people redundant. Um, some of that based on the hemorrhaging of cash because they've been chasing after the Metaverse dream. 
some of it because they overexpanded because everyone was online during COVID and now people are quite enjoying touching the flesh again and going to real events. So what's different about gaming? Why is it that gaming is this huge, huge, huge industry where people are still really engaged? What's the, I mean, what do you feel is the difference? Why do you enjoy working in gaming as opposed to being skeptical about the metaverse i know i've got my reasons but but it'd be good to hear from you um why i would choose to work in one than the other i think it's just the difference it makes to people's lives i mean metaverse is ostensibly ostensibly um about socializing um gaming's about um socializing as well but in a much more enjoyable context um so the um not just the socializing itself, but the um, taking part in society, um, that the huge footprints that gaming has in our culture. And that's been a very, very long time since gaming overtook movies and all other screen medium. If you add together um, all other screen medium together, um, you still don't get close um, to um, the value of the games industry. Um, so I think for even for people who have no involvement in gaming at all if you relate it to a blockbuster movie like if the new star wars, if new star wars movie came out and someone said to you well actually you've got brown hair you're not allowed in that'd be pretty rough right when it's what all your friends are doing all your friends are talking about it's plastered all over the billboards plastered all over the tv the same kind of thing with that cultural footprint so that makes it a really big deal to be excluded from but the flip side of that is um, it's a big deal to be included in as well. It can be a really powerful tool for um, social and, and cultural inclusion and participation in our society. You know? So, and Ian, I would like to have your, your opinion in on the impact of the pandemic in the overall gaming industry. We know that uh, in terms of development, we know that some uh, brands have opted not to releasing new products. I'm talking about more about the consoles and, and other devices. W what impact have you observed uh, that has caused what we might say caused a permanent change in the overall? Um, what change has there been? Um, firstly, there is the immediate financial impact, um, whereas a lot of industries um, suffer quite a lot due to COVID. Um, in a similar way to what you were just saying about Facebook slash Meta, um, when people were on lockdown, um, they were playing games. So profit margins of a lot of companies went up um, quite a bit. Um, I mean, that's coming back down again now for, for various reasons, but that was an immediate impact. Another one, the same with um, industries in general, was the shift to um, working from home. And also kind of related, um, and I assume this is the same in other industries as well, was the impact that that had on user research. So companies that were previously reluctant to do user research outside of the lab were now having to. So they were having to work out all their processes and methods and um, their, like um, how NDAs covered it and stuff as well for having sensitive stuff shown outside of the lab environment. Because I mean, just, just before COVID hit, there was a game called um, Hyperdot, which was a um, little indie game um, that did some nice accessibility stuff. And so they actually um, did their user research remotely 
which meant that they were unable, they were then able to reach demographics that can physically um, come into a lab. It also meant that they were able to um, have a much easier time of reaching more niche demographics because they've got a global pool of participants, you know. And that at the time was was quite um, quite revolutionary. Whereas now it's standard. So those benefits that Hyperdot was seeing, um, companies across the industry are, are able to to realise those same benefits of um, for accessibility user research. So that's been the biggie for me. The the the, the doors that it's actually opened um, to to allow that greater engagement with the audience. Um, one of the things that we talked about way back when was sort of the, the fact that games are meant to be difficult, right? And um, that part of the challenge with accessibility translating into the gaming space was you couldn't just take the web content accessibility guidelines because each game is unique and each game has has its own challenges. And and you mentioned at the time that there was a certain amount of pushback within certain areas of gaming that people didn't want things like you know uh, easy mode and stuff like that. I, do you think that aside from the people that are making the games, that the actual gaming community itself has really matured in its um, attitude to sort of accessibility settings and its understanding of the benefits of of all of this stuff because. From what I can see, there does seem to be a, a, a big shift in how people perceive these settings now as less of a, ooh, don't like that, it's detrimental, we should all be elite, to being something that's more um, celebrating the fact that everybody can choose how they wish to play. Um, well, we are we're certainly not there yet. There is still a huge amount of really negative and toxic um, discourse um, around that topic but it's all heading in the right direction I mean you don't have to go too many years into the past and you would see those kind of comments about things like color blindness um, like uh, comments like that about subtitles um, so for example someone saying like no some like someone who's colorblind posting in the comment section of an article saying um, I wish games would cater um, for color blindness so I could play more games and get replies from people saying, no, don't be ridiculous, don't be so selfish. Why should people destroy their creative vision and ruin all their designs just for you? Whereas now people have actually seen that kind of stuff in action. They know that's not the case at all. So now the discourse has actually shifted to, um, I'm totally in favor of things like subtitles and colorblind modes, but, <laughs> you know, so it's like, it's shifting bit by bit. And now that is the, the hot button topic is, is over um, difficulty. And particularly the the term easy mode, um, which isn't very helpful language, um, but it is is usually framed in that way of like I'm totally on board with accessibility, love these things and these things and these things, but I just don't think this particular thing is accessibility. Which is, even though we still got work to do to get beyond that, it's still nice to have actually progressed to that point. Um, but yes, it's it's all it's all kind of misunderstandings and misconceptions um, about really about what developers actually want for their games. So there's a common misconception amongst gamers that um, the actual um, game deliverable, the actual thing that you play, equals the vision the developers had. Um, that isn't really how game development works at all. So a, a designer will have 
an idea of what a player is going to experience. Then they put this framework in place, which is what the person plays, which is hopefully going to engender the kind of experience they wanted their players to have. So, so that actual game itself is just the means to an end. It's the experience the player has that developers actually have in mind. And that's where people come unstuck thinking that like, because I'm playing this game, this game seems really hard. Therefore, the game, therefore, the developer um, thought it was supposed to be really hard and should be excluding people. When actually the developer once had this idea of like, people should have a feeling of success through persistence and wants everybody to experience that, which is a very, very different kind of thing, which actually lends itself to um, accessibility. Whereas that mindset of, no, this game is a fixed monolith um, doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I quite like easy mode um, for me sometimes. So there are certain things I like to play um, that I tend to play when I'm tired, but I just want to relax. And then there are other times where I actually want to be fully engaged and tested and everything else. And I think that choice of being able to choose between the difficulty levels and the amount of things that I'm required to do and the amount of coordination I'm meant to have is something that I really value. Yeah, uh, I've as well. There was when um, uh, I think it was Uncharted 4 came out. Um, I heard um, one of the, some of the PlayStation talking about it, saying that um, at the weekends, when he's got like a whole afternoon to just sit there getting really into the challenge, he will have all of the assistance stuff turned off. But in the evening, when he's got home from a hard day's work, he's got half an hour to unwind um, in between, like putting the kids to bed and having dinner or something like that, you know. And he just whacks all the assists on and just has like a like a chill time. So, so that's it's, it's a nice example of, of um, how designing um, for what you might perceive to be a niche demographic actually has wide-reaching benefits, um, not just through um, disability, but through people's difference in preferences as well. No, uh, Ian, if, uh, you mentioned that there's today a lot more people, uh, uh, accessible, accessible experts working in gaming than, than ever before. Have you seen any team or working in trying to find different ways of working in terms of how they collaborate in order to, you know, let's say becoming more agile on the operator or reaching outcomes faster. Is anyone out there that is somehow working differently that you feel, okay, these guys here are doing something really interesting that others should follow? Um, well, it's everyone's still at quite early days, um, certainly compared to, like, if you go to AxCon and watch some of the talks there about um, companies who are many, many years into their accessibility journey, um, uh, most of the companies in the games industry um, who are doing good things are really only like um, like a few years, a few products into, into that journey. So there's still a long way to go. So people are still in the early stages of like figuring things out, how things work, and people do have quite different approaches to each other. Um, but I suspect that as time goes on, those will come closer together. And especially because the um, accessibility community is really good at sharing and collaborating as well and this is it's the same in other industries as well right it seems to be a topic where people are willing to kind of step across the the traditional divides and even when um the last of us 2 came out 
which is a PlayStation exclusive. So that's a game that's only available on PlayStation, like as a way to sell PlayStation consoles. Um, Phil Spencer, who is the head of Xbox, PlayStation's main competitor, um, was on Twitter praising um, The Last of Us 2 and congratulating the team on their successes. Like for the boss of PlayStation to be publicly praising an exclusive um, PlayStation game, that was, that was quite a big deal. It's not something that happens very often. And there was accessibility that did it, you know? Um, and there was, there was a really nice quote, actually, um, a conference a few years ago, a um, developer called um, John Knowles, um, who works on the Forza games, which are racing games. And he said, um, it's like there is a race between developers to build the most accessible game. And I know a thing or two about racing, and this is a race that everybody wins. And I love that quote, and it's so true. Um, just that even when people aren't directly sharing, collaborating, people are still looking around at what each other are doing and learning from it. Um, and I guess it's that saying about rising tide raises all boats, you know. Um, but people do really, really explicitly like share and collaborate. And like there's, there's a t team I was working with um, recently. Um, they were um, working on some stuff around um, around captioning. Uh, I said, well, there's this, these other people over here, I know they'd be doing some interesting stuff. Why don't I get in touch with them? And these other people over there said, oh, yeah, of course, like here's all our documentation, everything, pass over. They want to have meetings with us to, to chat through them. You know, that's not something that, that happens as often um, outside of accessibility, which is really nice to see. Well, it's really nice to see that it does happen with accessibility, not it's nice to see that it doesn't happen elsewhere. <laughs> Ian, um, I know that there was a lot of, um, you know, marketing done around the accessible controllers. And mm -hmm. I was just wondering, because um, I've had people approach me and say, oh, well, I have a better idea for an accessible controller, controller that would be accessible to everybody in every situation. I was just curious from your perspective, if um, how did making the, you know, making sure that the um, the hardware parts of the games are also accessible, is that also shifting these conversations and um, driving innovation in the industries? Yeah, um, the you, I like that you mentioned the marketing of it as well, because that was um, a really stupendous thing. The fact that not only Microsoft was stepping up and investing in hardware, I mean, you can't really get more putting your money where your mouth is than building hardware, you know. Um, but yeah, the way it was marketed, um, they um, not only booked a spot, a spot at the Super Bowl, but a double length spot, which mm -hmm. is millions and millions of dollars. And honestly, when that happened, seeing um, any company, let alone Microsoft, spending millions of dollars to um, advertise and educate about a switch interface, that it just blew my mind. And the reception it had as well, um, like uh, mainstream news articles saying Xbox won the Super Bowl, stuff like that. Um, just reams and reams of, of, of comments on social media and even YouTube comment sections. You know, I can never read the comment sections, just, just nothing but positivity about it. And this will have been a lot of people's um, first ever encounter with accessibility um, at all. And it was a really positive one. Um, so I think that's just helped to, to further the conversation ac across all industries. It was really lovely to see. 
but I mean, the, the um, US Surgeon General was tweeting about it. Um, T-Pain was tweeting about it. Cher was tweeting about it. It had um, it, it raised a lot of awareness and did a lot of good, just, just, the, just the marketing side of it. But something else I really loved about it was the packaging design. Um, I don't know if you've seen much about that, but I love that. Um, I think that's one that's actually one of the most important things about the device as well, because um, the learnings from that are applicable to anyone who's shipping products, shipping physical products, you know, across and all Ian, yeah, so do you mind just describing what the, it, you know, the packaging looked like a little bit? Um, yeah, so so it's best best to best to look it up because um, it makes okay. a lot more sense when you can actually see right. the photos and look at the videos. But the, all the patching in, patching is designed um, to be accessible. So there's nothing that needs cutting, nothing that needs tearing. It's just like big loops that you can operate one-handed. You just like pull it, pull like one big loop that you can operate with a finger or anything, and the whole thing just like all folds out. It's really really lovely. But it's that 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 way that the potential that has to influence other industries um, is is something that is applied in other ways as well. So the the fact that it raised all this awareness and profile about this kind of technology um, brought others on board. So Logitech, which is a um, manufacturer of um, well PC peripherals in general, um, but predominantly gaming peripherals. Um, they decided that they were going to um, jump in and build a bunch of um, accessibility switches. So not like the typical kind of semi-homebrew kind of efforts that are not particularly reliable and um, costs a lot of money because it's small production runs. Um, this is somebody, a company who already like operates factories building this kind of stuff. So they were able to um, out this suite of accessibility switches for a tiny fraction of the cost that they normally would do. We need the, the kind of thing that would um, cost like about $1,500 to buy like a suite of all different types of switches to like test out, you get packages of those for using um, like 10 schools and stuff. Um, but yeah, the, the, the cost of this was, God, I can't remember how much it cost, but it was something like $100 for like wide range of all different switches and stuff like right. you'd be lucky to get two switches of the most basic type for that money normally and of course because the adaptive controller is a switch interface it was intentionally built on existing industry standards all those switches that logitech had built that they were thinking is intended for gaming that's applicable for anything that uses switches whether you're operating your iphone whether you're operating um, like a tablet or attached to a wheelchair in your school or it's really nice to see the, the impact that's had on the, in the wider industries in general. The, so I think it's really interesting. A long, long time ago, I was working in building assistive technologies on mobile phones, and <clears throat> we were looking at buying in text-to-speech voices, and, and we were given pricing. And, and the pricing that we were given versus the pricing that the gaming industry could buy the same components for even in sort of 2008, was you know, phenomenally different. We were being charged, you know, five, six dollars per instance of using a voice, and it would be 30, 40 cents um, for the gaming industry. So um, that just shows, you know, A, that 
the technology industry understands scale and wants to sell to scale, but also sometimes by saying that we're assistive tech, saying that we're you know constraining ourselves to that niche, we're actually making stuff less affordable, less financially accessible. So so when organizations like Logitech bring their sort of scale and muscle to um, to doing this stuff, everybody benefits, as you say. Yeah, and then just the expertise as well, not just of how to build products, but how to um, how to handle the um, economics of it. Um, so that is why it's available as a set rather than buying, the ind- buying them individually, because that means they only have one set of um, packaging costs and distribution costs and stuff per suite rather than per item. So that allowed them to push the, the price of it down quite a lot. It's that kind of savvy from like working in that field for a long time there that I think has really helped. But yeah, I just looked it up. It's um, so yeah, the, the cheapest bargain basement um, switches you can normally get are like forty, fifty dollars for one, and then they go up in price very quickly from there. Um, this costs hundred dollars. It contains um, ten switches of different sizes and sensitivities, two analog triggers, and also like um, Velcro mounting and stickers for them as well. That just t- turns things on its head quite a bit, you know. Yeah, definitely. Economies of scale. So thank you, Ian. It's been fascinating. We've reached the end of our half hour. I'm sure we could actually go on for a lot longer. Um, yeah, so my clear text um, for, for keeping us captioned and um, really look forward to having a lively discussion on Twitter and maybe one about Twitter as well. So um, <laughs> thank you again, Ian. Thank you.